Today, we are studying the book of Ezekiel, and it's an amazing book. This was the very first book that I had the privilege of going through verse by verse when I started going to a church that actually taught the Bible. So basically, Ezekiel is a prophetic book. It covers a lot of ground. It deals with a wide range of topics and scenarios and time periods. But the core message of the book is that God desires an intimate and personal relationship with his people. So today we experience this as the, what do you call it, when the Holy Spirit lives inside of you? It's the the new covenant. So Jesus initiated the new covenant when he drank from the cup at the Last Supper. And that's in Luke 22, 19-20. It says, he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So the ancient prophets foretold the most important aspect of the new covenant which makes this new relationship between man and God possible, and that is that God will put his spirit inside of us and give us a new heart with new desires that will cause us to want to love and serve him. Okay, That is the core of the new covenant. He gives us his spirit inside of us, gives us a new heart with new desires that will cause us to want to love and serve him. So before I read that verse from Ezekiel, I'm just going to pray. Father, thank you for this awesome message that the book of Ezekiel is going to deliver. And we just pray that you will help us to see the heart of God as we go through this book, the heart of love for his people and the pain it causes when his people turn away and when people who don't want to be saved refuse to be saved. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, it says in Ezekiel. So we just pray that you'll help us to have open hearts to receive what you want to tell us in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. And this is also going to be a memory verse. So we're going to do this at the start of each sermon. It says, And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. It doesn't sound like an Old Testament book, does it? So, the New Covenant, you know, we think of that as being for the church. Actually, it doesn't end at the rapture. (laughs) What the book of Ezekiel clearly shows, what we'll learn as we go through, is that the New Covenant is actually promised to Israel. And its ultimate fulfillment will be when Jesus restores the nation of Israel and rules the restored earth for a thousand years from the new temple in Jerusalem. And when we get to Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, we will read all about that. Israel is going to be the world superpower for a thousand years. And during that time, the Holy Spirit will be living in the hearts of all believing Jews, as well as all other believers. So, we should be really thankful that God in his great mercy is willing to share the promises and blessings intended for Israel with the Gentile church. Remember, we're the Gentiles. We're not Jews. So if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And Romans chapters 9 through 11 explain that we, the church, and it describes us there as branches from the wild olive tree, and God grafts us in to the natural olive tree, which is Israel. So in the book of Romans, the promises are given to Israel, but Israel chose to reject the promises when they rejected the Messiah, and God grafted in the Gentiles instead, and God is working through the church now, you see. And it's not that the church has replaced Israel, but rather God's blessings to Israel overflow to the church. And basically the principle is the more Israel is blessed, the more we, the church, are blessed. So Romans 11, 11 to 12 says, Did God's people Israel stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down 
God's offer of salvation, that is, they rejected Jesus at his first coming, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. And of course that's referring to the millennial reign, the kingdom of God on earth, when God restores the earth back to what it was like in the Garden of Eden and Jesus rules in a perfect righteous reign. So that is the new covenant. It's fulfilled in the nation of Israel, but we get to share in the blessings that God has given to Israel. We're grafted in. So now, the book of Ezekiel also showcases God's heart towards sinful man. So Ezekiel 33.11. This is just an overview of the book to give you the main concepts that we're going to read about as we go through. So Ezekiel 33.11, from the New Living, it says, As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn. Turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? And in this book, the book of Ezekiel, we're going to see God go to extraordinary lengths to get the attention of his people so they will hear the message and hopefully repent. So, if we're willing to step back and take a look at our own lives, I think that you'll find that God has gone to extraordinary lengths in his pursuit of you. You think about your own journey and just look at what God has done to bring you to where you are now. And so God does amazing things through Ezekiel to get the attention of his people and he's done the same in us personally today. It's just the way God is. Now, the book of Ezekiel also showcases God's rich mercy. Israel was at this point in their history really backslidden. They were in a state of really bad unbelief. They had really hard hearts as a nation. But what did God do? He gave them promises, beautiful, amazing promises of a future and a hope for them. And God does the same for us in the New Testament. And you think about Romans 8.18. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So we suffer now, but there's glory to come. And as it says in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 22, Therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the Sovereign Lord. I am bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. (laughs) Listen to what he said there. I am bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. I am doing it to protect my holy name, on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. And for me, it's like the Old Testament version of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which shows that God saved us, or saves us and blesses us, not because we deserve it, but simply because God desired to give it to us. It was his good pleasure, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. And of course, those famous verses in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. So, now we're going to jump into the book of Ezekiel, and we'll start at verse 1. This is the historical background to the book of Ezekiel. It's quite interesting. So, now it came to pass in the 30th year, this is Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chiba, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So what's the 30th year mean? Well, most likely it's the age of Ezekiel when he got this vision. So according to Numbers chapter 4 verse 3, priests begin their temple service at 30 years of age. But Ezekiel has been taken captive, we'll find out about that later, taken captive from his homeland, from the kingdom of Judah, and probably in Jerusalem, by Nebuchadnezzar, and he's now in Babylon. He can't be a priest in the temple anymore, and so God instead calls him to be a prophet. So instead of using his priest training, and they start at 20 years old, to become a priest, God is going to use Ezekiel's knowledge of the word to be a prophet. He's calling him to be a prophet. So let's look at some facts about this amazing guy called Ezekiel. So firstly, he was a priest, verse 3. He was living in Babylon. 
and he had his own home. That's Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1. And he would have been born about 622 BC. Now remember these numbers? As the numbers get bigger, you go backwards in time. As they get smaller, you come forward in time because we're heading towards 0 BC when Jesus was born. So he would have been born during the reign of godly King Josiah. And he was the last good king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And there was a good chance, because of this, he had good parents, just like Daniel and his friends as well. They had godly names, so there were some godly parents at that time, because of Josiah's good example. Ezekiel is assumed to have married when he was about 23 years old, so that's about 600 BC. And Ezekiel, along with his wife, was taken captive to Babylon, along with King Jehoiachin. During the second wave of deportations, we'll learn about that in a minute. And he would have been in captivity in Babylon for about four years before God called him to be a prophet when he was 30 years old. So for four years he's there being a slave or doing whatever he's doing, working in Babylon. And the last dated prophecy of his book, because all the prophecies are dated, they all have a, a year, a month, and a day, is in the year 571. Remember, that's closer to the year zero, so it's getting further ahead, when Ezekiel would have been 56. So basically, God called him when he was 30, and he's prophesying for about 26 years. So quite a long span of ministry. And now, Ezekiel lost his wife when he was 37, and he was commanded not to remarry. Now, when we get to that, that's really, really sad what happened there. It's really interesting. It's a picture. God painted a picture. Now, a quote from David Guzik, and this sets the tone of Ezekiel's ministry throughout the whole book of Ezekiel. This contest between the false prophets and the true prophets, and why God called Ezekiel. So Ezekiel's prophetic ministry began when Judah still stood as an independent kingdom though under Babylon's powerful domination, and the temple still stood and functioned in Jerusalem. During this time, before Judah's complete conquest, there were many false prophets in Jerusalem and Babylonia who claimed God would rescue Judah and those already taken captive, like Ezekiel, would soon return. And Ezekiel's message rebuked the sinful wish to escape the deserved judgment the Babylonians would soon bring and to give God's people real hope instead of the empty hope of the false prophets. So God is using Ezekiel's message to rebuke the sinful wish to escape the deserved judgment the Babylonians would soon bring and to give his people real hope instead of the empty or false hope that the false prophets were giving. They were saying, ah, in two years or whatever, everyone's going to come home. All the temple treasures are going to go back, and you don't worry about it. It's all going to be good. The temple's standing there. The temple, the temple, the temple of the Lord. We've got the temple. Everything's good. We can do what we want. Just keep going to church. You'll be fine. Now, the name Ezekiel means the strength of God or strengthened by God, and that's very fitting for his ministry. And he served in Babylon at the same time as Jeremiah was serving in Jerusalem in Judah, and Daniel was also serving in Babylon too. So now, verse 1, it says, he was among the captives. And what the dictators back then used to do, like the, the kings of these worldwide empires used to do, was they would deport the best of the people, the leaders, the spiritual leadership, the political leadership, anyone who was good to fight in the army, anyone who had good skills you know, at different trades, and they would take them back home and use them to build up their own economy and make the home country weak. And so three times Nebuchadnezzar did this. Now, you should have a chart there. It's called the Kings of Israel chart. So I just want to explain quickly how the children of Israel got to where they got. So have you got that sheet in front of you? The Kings of Israel chart? Yeah. So on the front page, it's got Saul and then David and then Solomon up the top. That's a united kingdom. So the first three kings of Israel were Saul, 
then David and then Solomon. And then after Solomon died, there was a civil war, a split in the kingdom. And then you have two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And that included the tribe of Benjamin. And on that sheet, it shows you all the different kings in the southern kingdom. And it also shows you all the different kings on the other side in the northern kingdom. Now, have a look at the northern kingdom. They were all bad kings. And they were already, at this point in time, when Ezekiel was alive and ministering in Babylon, it was quite a long time ago, maybe 100 years or so, since Assyria had conquered and destroyed the northern kingdom. So, now all that was left was the southern kingdom, called Judah. And the destruction, or the conquest happened in three waves and that's a little table at the bottom there the first wave was in 605 bc jerusalem was attacked and daniel and the other captives were taken to babylon so daniel might be familiar with him the book of daniel he was taken to babylon in 605 bc in the first wave or the first phase of the conquest the second wave it was in 597 bc and jerusalem was attacked a lot of the treasure was taken from the temple, and more captives were taken to Babylon, including Ezekiel this time. So Ezekiel was part of the second wave. And then the third wave in 587, Jerusalem falls, and almost everyone remaining in the kingdom was either killed or exiled. There's just a handful of people left, and nothing left there to live. So I've got a, a little bit of a story way of describing this, so you get it. It gives some of the historical background. It's from John Corson's commentary. It says this, In the year 605 BC, the Babylonians came from the north to besiege Jerusalem. They didn't destroy the city at that time, but they did carry away a number of young men who were considered to be the cream of the crop, including a young man named Daniel, along with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, back to Babylon. In doing this, Nebuchadnezzar was serving notice to Jerusalem that she had better keep in line. Jerusalem, however, didn't get the message. In 597 BC, the Jews showed signs of rebellion, so Nebuchadnezzar came down a second time. This time, he took 10,000 people to Babylon, one of whom was a young priest in training named Ezekiel. The captors were not treated cruelly or brutally because, unlike the Assyrians, the Babylonian style was not to destroy them but to impress them. Babylon was surrounded by walls approximately 35 stories tall and 87 feet wide, with 100 towers. Inside the city were numerous temples to the Babylonian god Marduk. Throughout the city, there were over 300 hanging gardens considered to be one of the wonders of the ancient world. With flowering plants imported from all over the world, their beauty was unparalleled. In addition, Babylonian garments were highly treasured throughout the known world. So when the Babylonians brought the Jews into the city, they didn't destroy them with brutality. Instead, they seduced them with carnality. And the Jews grew so comfortable in Babylon that when they were allowed to go home 70 years later, only a handful chose to leave. Ezekiel ministered to the people who were carried into Babylon, who, at the time, still had hard hearts toward the Lord. Meanwhile, Jerusalem still showed signs of rebellion. So in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came down a third and final time, and this time destroyed the city burned the temple, and wiped out the populace. So I hope that gives you a bit of background into what's going on. This constant rebellion from the leaders in Jerusalem. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, you get the backstory there in more detail. So, first one, the river Chiba. It's a canal flowing southeast from the city of Babylon. So Ezekiel's not actually in Babylon. He's just outside of Babylon. Now, I saw visions of God. A vision is like a dream, but you're awake when it happens. The heavens were opened, and this happened a number of times. Matthew 3.16, Jesus' baptism. Stephen, the first martyr, being stoned to death, he looked up and Jesus was standing there waiting to receive him. There was Peter in Acts 10 praying on the rooftop and seeing the sheet with all the different animals and God telling him to eat them, saying they're all clean. And all of these were significant occasions, and here is no different. God is about to reveal something new to Ezekiel. So in verse 2 it says, On the fifth day of the month, which was 
in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, by the river Kibar, Sheba, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So basically, God started talking or working through Ezekiel five years, about five years before the temple was destroyed, about five years before the rest of the population was wiped out in the third wave of deportations. So basically, <laughs> the people would know that Ezekiel was a true prophet because everything he said came true. And the false prophets were obviously discredited because they kept saying that everyone's going to come back and the Babylonians will be defeated and all that kind of stuff. But for those who believed the false prophets and stayed in Jerusalem and followed that deception, it cost them their lives, most of them. So false prophecy, these false prophets cost many people, probably hundreds of thousands of people, their lives as they decided to rebel against Babylon instead of doing what Jeremiah and Ezekiel said, submit to Babylon, this is God's doing. Submit to God's discipline. People said, nah. Now, the word of the Lord came expressly, in verse 3, to Ezekiel the priest. Now, it means explicitly, clearly, or deliberately. It's like Jonathan talking to David. He says, if the arrow goes to the right-hand side of the rock, I will expressly or deliberately or clearly say to the boy, the arrow is on the right-hand side of the rock when he's trying to communicate a message to David there in 1 Samuel twenty twenty-one. Now, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar, now, most likely there's a community of Jews there, and we'll find that later. There's lots of Jews around, and they used to come visit him at his house. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. This is interesting. What does that mean? The hand of the Lord was upon him. Well, it connotes the idea of God's strength on behalf of the person involved. So God's strength on behalf of the person involved. So God comes upon you and empowers you. Now what do we call that today? Being filled with the Spirit, yeah. So in the Old Testament... Spirit would come upon people and they would speak, lead, act, etc., do miracles by the power of God. And this empowerment or coming upon would usually only be for kings and prophets or other leaders. And it would come and go as needed, as the power or the equipping was needed. Today in the New Covenant, we have the Spirit in us, which is permanent. But we also still have the Spirit upon us, which, again, he still does come and go because of sin, and we're not always walking with the Lord, and therefore we're not being led by the Lord, we're not being empowered by the Lord. So I've got some references there you can look up. And then Acts 1, 8, 2, 4, and 4.31, these verses show that the Spirit upon us is still a repetitive thing in the New Testament. So I'll read these three verses. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's Jesus' promise. And in chapter 2, verse 4, the day of Pentecost, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then sometime later, after Peter and John had been before the Sanhedrin, in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it says, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So again, just showing that the Spirit coming upon is repetitive. As we continue to submit to the Lord, we continue to be filled with the Lord. Now, we come to Ezekiel's vision of God. This vision is just incredible. When you read it, it spins you out because you go, what on earth? Is he talking about? So we're going to go through it step by step. I'm going to go fairly quick and just pull out the main points. Start at verse 4. The title here is The Glory of God. And a quote here from Feinberg it says, The vision Ezekiel had at the time of his call never left him, but influenced his thought continually. It was the knowledge of God, holy, glorious, and sovereign. And 
just one more thing before we start. Ezekiel chapters 1 to 3 is a unit. It's the longest and most in-depth description of a prophet's calling in the scriptures. So chapters 1 through 3 is God calling Ezekiel to be a prophet. And the first chapter is just this vision of the glory of God. So verse 4. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. So a whirlwind, like a tornado, but not just an ordinary tornado. This is a fire tornado, and it's going around and around. It's like a raging fire spinning around and around. It's coming out of the north because that's where God's judgment was coming from. God was using the Babylonians. They were to the north. And it's a way of saying that these judgments were of God. It's God's will because of the people's disobedience. Now, a great cloud with fire engulfing itself. Can you think back when God has revealed himself this way in the past? Yeah, Moses. For 40 years, God revealed himself to the children of Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a, a pillar of fire by night. And also Exodus chapter 3 verse 2, it's Moses in the burning bush. The bush was burning but not consumed. So it's a picture of the glory of God. Now, why is God revealing himself to Ezekiel in this way? Well, where is Ezekiel living? He's living in the country of Babylon. And they're worshipping all these false gods. It will be easy to think that these false gods of Babylon are better, stronger, more powerful than the Jewish God. And so God is helping Ezekiel to see that his God is the real God. And there's a quote here by a guy called Taylor. The multiplicity of temples, the incredible prosperity of the city compared to Judah, the hive of industry and culture, All this would have made any Hebrew captive feel how small his home country was and how great were the all-conquering gods of Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) So, it says their brightness was all around it and radiating out of its mist. So this brightness is, again, the glory of God. Now, the four living creatures. You might have heard about these in Revelation and other places in the Bible. So I'll read a quick description of these. Also, from within it, so from within this whirlwind or this tornado or fire, came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the colour of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on the four sides and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight ahead. So these um, living creatures, in chapter 10, Ezekiel calls them cherubim. Do you know what cherubim are? They're really powerful angels. The top-notch angels. They're the most powerful, highest-ranking, highest-authority angels that God made. So... These angels are also mentioned, I believe, in Revelation 4, 6-8. to And you find cherubim mentioned in the Garden of Eden as well. There was a cherub with a flaming sword keeping up the people from going back to the Tree of Life in the Garden of Eden. And these cherubim, the pictures of them, were all over the temple. There was a cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was actually like a statue of these cherubim. And so basically, these cherubim are very well-known to the people of Israel. Now, they're the likeness of a man. So they're not men, but their general form and structure looked like men. And each one had four faces. We'll come to those in verse 10. And they had four wings. So, do angels have wings? Well, some do. And their legs are straight. So, like human legs are straight, their legs are straight. But the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. And they sparkled like the colour of burnished bronze. So the legs of these four cherubim, these angels, sparkled and shone or glowed like the colour of bronze. And what does that represent? Well, Jesus' feet are also described as being like fine brass in Revelation one fifteen. 
So brass represents purity and judgment in the scriptures. And just to help you understand that, the altar in front of the temple was made of bronze. It's a place of purity and judgment. And a quote from John Corson, this speaks of purity, this is brass. There is no other way to be purified than through fiery problems and difficulties. Our faith is more precious than gold purified by fire, Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1.7. How did the smelter know when the gold was truly pure? When he could look into the molten gold and see the reflection of his own face, he would know the gold was pure. So too, the Lord takes us through hot times and fiery trials. It's a long process, but if we hang in there, we'll begin to see something of Jesus reflected in us. So the hands of a man in verse 8 were under their wings, so they had human-looking hands. And verse 9, their wings touched one another. So basically, try and get a picture of this. These four cherubim, these angels of high authority, were touching each other with their wings. They were close to each other. And for me, it's a picture of unity as they worked and travelled together and went in the same direction. And it says in the next verse, in verse 9, and each one went straight forward. And they all moved together as one. Now verse 10 to 14. As for the likeness of the faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right hand side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left hand side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. And then we'd like to be on the back, facing backwards. Thus were their faces, their wings stretched upward. Two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies, and each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning, and the living creatures ran back and forth, in appearance like a flash of lightning. So, the four faces... A man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. In Revelation 4, 6 to 8, you have the same thing. But in there, you've got four angels with four different faces. It could be that John simply described the particular face that was turned toward his line of sight. So it's most likely the same cherubim. Now, why the four different faces? Well, the lion is like the king of the wild beasts wild animals, the ox is like the strongest of all domesticated animals, the eagle is like the king of all the birds, and man is the highest of all God's creation. And what we're going to find out is that above them is like this firmament or platform, and then above that is God's throne. So it's a picture that all of God's creation is subordinate or submitted to God. And verse 12, they went wherever the Spirit wanted to go. And this is important. This is the goal for us. These angels, these cherubim, they went wherever the Spirit told them to go, wherever the Spirit led. And that's our goal too. We go wherever the Spirit wants us to go. We want to be becoming more and more responsive to the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding in our lives. And verse 13, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. Out of the fire went lightning. Can you imagine watching that? Like this fire coming out of them and lightning. Out of the fire went lightning. So from these angels, it's just amazing power. A quote from a guy called Trap: Angels are all on a light fire, as it were, with zeal for God and indignation against sin. Let us be similarly affected. So when you're in the presence of God, you start to glow. Like Moses, but he started to glow. And John Corson says, this speaks of intensity. These creatures weren't just flickering, they were burning, ignited on fire. One evangelist of old was asked how he attracted so many people to come and hear him preach. It's very simple, he answered. I pray in my closet until I'm ignited, and then I come out and people come to see me burn. So basically, we spend time in the presence of God and we start to glow like Moses did, like these cherubim do. And it's the presence of God in us as we draw near to the Lord. That's what draws people. 
to the Lord. Now, verse 14, the creatures run back and forth like a flash of lightning. So, really quick. Imagine, you know, seeing a massive chariot. It's just huge going back and forth like the speed of light, you know. Now, application. Here we see activity. The living creatures moved like lightning. It has been said that God never uses a lazy man. If you want to be used by the Lord, you must be wholehearted, energetic, and enthusiastic in your service for Him. You must be ready to lay aside anything that slows you down. Now, Hebrews 12.1. That was from John Corson. I thought we could read Hebrews 12.1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Now, we come to the next part of this vision, and it's the wheels. You know, if you've got a chariot, you're going to need wheels, right? It's got to run on something. But of course, this is a spiritual chariot. So, verses 15 to 21. Now I looked at the living creatures. Behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. So, four wheels, one for each creature. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl, and all four had the same likeness. So they're all the same. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they moved, they went forward in any one of four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. As for their rims, they were so high, they were awesome. So massive, these things were massive. And their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. Because there the Spirit went. And the wheels were lifted together with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So, these weird wheels, you could call this. <laughs> like a gyroscope, if you can imagine a gyroscope, a wheel within a wheel. So I'm imagining, and no one has a really good understanding of what this really looks like. Ezekiel's struggling to explain it. I'm imagining it's a, a massive, glorious four-wheeled chariot bearing the throne of God. Now, beryl, what color is beryl? Usually green. So. Most likely, it's the emerald green, like the color of the emerald. So these wheels were glowing with this beautiful emerald green color. And verse 17, when they moved, they went toward any one of four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. And it seems to be that their wheels and their workings could move in any directions. Now, someone compared it to a ball bearing. You know, you roll a ball bearing, you can go any way. You don't need a steering wheel, it just rolls. So something like that. Now, as for their rims, they were so high, they were awesome. Again, this is not just a man-sized thing. This is something that is overwhelming Ezekiel. It's massive. It says, they were so high, they were awesome. So he's looking up and going, whoa, this is huge. And the rims are full of eyes. Now, this is most likely not literal. So in Revelation 4.6, John describes the cherubim themselves as being full of eyes, front and back. And most people, most commentators, understand the eyes to be a way of describing great knowledge and intelligence. So, uh, example, Wisby, he says, The wheels symbolize the omnipresence of God, while the eyes on the rims suggest the omniscience, seeing and knowing everything. Or the omniscience of God, seeing and knowing everything. So that the eyes represent intelligence and being all-knowing. It's like a poetic way of saying that. Verse 19 and 21, it says, When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. So basically, they all moved together. They all worked together. Now, we're going to see this chariot, if I can call it that, <laughs> this, this manger um, throne 
uh, you know, angels and, and platform that is transporting the throne of God. Three times. We're going to see it two more times. Once here, and then in chapters 9 and 10, it comes and the glory of the Lord comes out of the temple, and goes onto the platform, onto the throne, and then it's taken away from the temple. So the sin of God's people has pushed God away from his temple. And then in Ezekiel 43, we have God's glory coming back into the temple, but this is the millennial temple. This is a temple that will be built by Jesus in the millennial reign. Why is this important? Well, it doesn't mean much for us, but for the Jews, the glory of God leaving the Holy of Holies would be disaster. You know, the whole thing was that God is in this place and he's going to hear our prayers, he's going to watch over us, but he's gone. He's left the Holy of Holies. But the promise is that he will come back. And that will give them hope. And they're looking forward to the new kingdom. Verses 22 to 25. The likeness of the ferment above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal. So like a diamond, clear, stretched out over their heads. It's like this massive platform of crystal, diamond. And under the ferment, their wings spread out straight one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side, and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. A voice came from above the ferment that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. So now we're looking at what's above the living creatures. We're looking at this chariot and there's a, a platform, this firmament. In Revelation, the same wording is translated as a sea of glass, like crystal before the throne of God. And the noise of their wings, this is a noisy chariot. You wouldn't be sleeping, it just went past. And this is used to describe the voice of the ascended Jesus, this, this description of this noise, um, the voice of God in Revelation 14.2, and also the voice of a great multitude in Revelation 19.6. So verse 25, it says, A voice came from above the firmament. Now whose voice do you think that was? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's God's voice. And I'm pretty sure it's Jesus. God the Son. Last little bit, verses 26 to 28. And above the firmament, over their heads, was a likeness of a throne. Now, Ezekiel's building this up and building this up. He's showing us the cherubim, he's showing us the wheels, and he's showing us the platform. Now he's showing us a throne and who's sitting on it. In appearance like a sapphire stone, on the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also, from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the colour of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So now we come to the throne and him who sits on the throne. So, in appearance like a sapphire stone, the sapphire stone is blue. So, the throne is blue. So, imagine a beautiful gem throne. It's the likeness of that. It's probably not a physical sapphire, but it's glowing like a blue sapphire. And, verse 26, on the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Why does he keep saying the likeness, the likeness, the likeness? Well, he's trying to describe something that he doesn't understand, something he's never seen before with words that are common to us, words that we can understand, so we can have something to relate to. Remember, this is a spiritual object. It's not a physical object. It's in the spiritual world. We could be right here and we would never see it, if you know what I mean. Like an angels can be here and we can't see them either. And in the book of Revelation, John, the Apostle John used the same kind of language when describing heavenly scenes. He's trying to describe stuff that is beyond this world, something that we have never seen. All right, with the appearance of a man. So 
A quote from Feinberg, If God is to be portrayed in concrete form, the highest symbol man can use is the human form. When God wanted to reveal himself in the supreme revelation of his person, he did so in the form of the man, Christ Jesus. So the description suggests that Ezekiel did not see a face and a body that he could have drawn, but rather a fiery brightness that had a human shape and that he knew to be living and personal. So that's the kind of picture you get from this vision. So this is called a theophany or Christophany. If it's Christ, it's a Christophany. It's Jesus appearing in a human form, a glorified human form here, before his actual incarnation, being born on the earth. Now, there's four colours. What are the four colours so far? There's the colour of amber here. What colour is that? Orange, yep, a burnt orange colour. And then there was the wheels, which were green. The ferment was clear like crystal, and the throne was blue, yeah. And the top half of the Lord is described as golden brown amber, like the colour of glowing metal. So, from the appearance of his waist and down when I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. So imagine flashing red and yellow light coming downward from this representation of God. David Guzik says, The suggestion is of his power and radiance going down from heaven down to earth. Now the rainbow. This is really good. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. You can imagine all these colours blending into each other. Like you see a rainbow on a cloudy day. The blue, the orange, the green, the the bronze, and it's all around the throne. So this rainbow colour is all around the throne. John saw the same thing in Revelation 4.3. So now we come to application. The throne represents what? If there's a throne, there must be a king. And the king is in charge. So the throne represents God's complete and total authority over everyone and everything. So God is showing Ezekiel here that he has all sovereignty, all power, all authority and all glory. But surrounding the throne is a rainbow. And what's the rainbow represent? What promise goes along with the rainbow? Mercy, yeah, I will never destroy the earth again with a worldwide flood. So the rainbow is a symbol of God's mercy. So when we come to the throne, what do we find? Mercy. It's good, eh? So Hebrews 4, 14-16 So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help when we need it most. And another verse I like in Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So women boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So basically, the whole point of this vision is God revealing himself as God to Ezekiel and that he is above all things, he's high above all things and he is in total control. Now glory, what does the glory mean? The word is kabod and it means to be heavy. So when you apply it to royalty and divinity it denotes the sheer weight of that person's majesty and that evokes a response of awe in the observer. So we have this feeling of awe when we look upon God's glory. Now, the application here, we must come to God in complete surrender, and only then will God speak to us, because it says this, So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. So when Ezekiel saw this, he recognized this was the glory of God. This was the presence of God, and he fell on his face. It's a way of showing his humility, his submission to the Lord. And it was only after Ezekiel fell down before the throne that God began to speak to him. And it's the same for us. Until we fall down before him, until we 
humble ourselves and we can't expect him to speak to us if we are proud and self-sufficient. And one last application. Our perspective will change when we have a revelation of God's glory and power over our earthly situation. So consider Ezekiel. Just put yourself in his shoes for a bit, right? He's been taken from his homeland. He's captive in Babylon. He's probably wondering, what is God doing here? Is there any hope for us? What does my future hold? I was trained to be a priest, but what do I do now? He's kind of hopeless. He doesn't know what's going on. Now we can have similar feelings and be in similar situations. But I really do encourage you to think about the main message here of this vision. Understand that God is in control. He's on the throne. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. God is saying to Ezekiel, I know it looks hopeless, but I'm in control. Trust me. And a quote from Wearsby. No matter what message God gave him to preach or what opposition arose from the people, Ezekiel would be encouraged and strengthened because he had seen the mighty throne of God in the midst of the fiery trial. He had seen the glory of God. So the more we understand God's glory, his power, his omnipotence, the fact that he is actually in control, then it changes our perspective of our situations that we go through here. So just to finish, the book of Ezekiel will show us that although times may be tough and our sin may brought us low, we still have a glorious future ahead of us and we serve our risen saviour who is seated on the throne, far above all power and principalities, and of whose glory there is no end. So, considering this, let us make every effort to respond to God's promises, so that we can partake of the divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. And that's a summary of Second Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Father, we thank you for this vision. It's, it's really difficult to picture these angels with the wheels and the platform, with the throne, and with the likeness of the glory of God above it, high above it. But Lord, we thank you for it, because what it does show is that you are in control, even in the midst of dire situations. Help us to trust you. Help us to put all our faith in you, and not to panic, not to worry, but just to really trust you. And that's what God is doing with Ezekiel. God is going to ask Ezekiel to do some amazing things. He's going to be laughed at, he's going to be jeered, he's going to be misunderstood. But Lord, if we have an accurate understanding, a full understanding of who you are and that you're in control and that your plans will prevail, then we can be confident, we can be bold, and we can serve the living God faithfully without the fear of man. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.